Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from the classic film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, made in 1977. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. I think we can all agree that 1977 was, and probably still is, the most successful year of John Williams' career as a film composer. He wrote the scores to the number one film in the world, and the third highest grossing film as well. Looking ahead to future years, Williams never worked on more than one film that ranked in the top three in terms of box office again, though he did come close for four or five times. We can't talk about the great successes of 1977 without looking back to 1976 because the scores to Star Wars and the film discussed on this episode, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, really got their starts in 1976. As for Star Wars, Williams visited the Tunisia set of that film in spring 1976, breaking his tradition of keeping his first impression of the film to the screening room. But he listened to George Lucas's ideas for the film and the music then, and began planning the approach to the score in terms of the use of thematic elements and the use of a symphony orchestra without the help of electronic music. As for Close Encounters, Williams spent the early part of 1976 huddled in his office on the Universal lot with Steven Spielberg trying to find five musical notes that would become the signature of the film. Spielberg had told Williams about the screenplay he wrote about aliens who come to Earth, and Spielberg wanted a musical phrase to be the main communication between Earthlings and aliens. Naturally, Williams jumped at the opportunity to make his mark on the film. Every composer would want the opportunity to have their music not only played in the underscore, but be an integral part of the plot. It imprints their work on the audience in a very conscious fashion. But what kind of musical phrase would work? Spielberg didn't want a full-on melody, and he and Williams figured that five notes would fit the bill. I know there are many people listening to this show who are professional musicians or have some close connection to the music industry. All of you know well how many permutations of five notes there could be in the musical scale, and Williams worked his way through hundreds of them in early 1976. I'm sure Williams could have, and would have, worked on this for months trying to find the right one, but Spielberg needed these notes for playback during crucial scenes in the film, and he wanted to start shooting in May 1976. So, Williams and Spielberg whittled their best efforts from a few hundred, down to ten, then settled on this. It starts with a G, then an A, then down to F for the first three notes. It drops a full octave to F again before going up to the C. And obviously this can work in any key. Williams spent two days in the studio in June and July 1976 recording versions of the five-note theme that would be played on screen in various ways, including a xylophone and a chorus of Hindi monks. When the finale arrives, the Earthlings prepare to communicate to the first series of spaceships that come in contact with them. Power 
tang. Go. Up a full tone. Down a major third. Now drop an octave. Crew blue. Go. Up a perfect fifth. Nothing at all. Those who know music well must enjoy that portion of the film because you get full-on instructions on how to play the phrase. No need to, quote, play it by ear. The most famous version of the five-tone performance is the conversation between the Earthlings and the mothership. The oboe, played by John Ellis in the orchestra, stands in as the voice for the Earthlings, and Tommy Johnson's tuba is the voice of the mothership. In talking about the structure of this signal, which I guess we can't really call a theme, Williams said, quote, What is interesting is it ends on the fifth degree. It starts on the second, goes up to the third, down to the first, then drops an octave and ascends to the fifth. Ending on the fifth in music is like ending a sentence with the word and. It's not resolved. So the signal seemed to compel some kind of response, end quote. Now, this is very similar to the construction of the Star Wars main theme. After the initial G, the next note is a D, which is ascending to the fifth, that perfect fifth that lifts our spirits musically. But the theme can't stop there, or it would have, as William said, ended the theme with, and what now? It has to go on to suggest attainment of that higher G. Once those recordings were done in 1976 for Close Encounters, Williams took care of the score for Black Sunday, then came back to Close Encounters and wrote music for scenes he had read in Spielberg's screenplay. Then in spring 1977, he took care of the Star Wars score before returning full-time to Close Encounters. Now what stands out for me with the Close Encounters score is how it sounds like the music he might have written for Star Wars if George Lucas stuck with his original plan. It seems otherworldly at times, mysterious and a bit scary. There are many atonal passages that highlight our fear and concern about what's happening in the movie, but it still contains some wonderful John Williams themes to make us feel a little more settled. One of those themes is the music written for Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfus. Roy is an electrician who is receiving visions of the upcoming alien visit. His four-note theme has a familiar ring to it.
Sounds like a version of the Dies Irae section of a Catholic Mass, doesn't it? Other composers have put their own variations of the Dies Irae into their scores, from It's a Wonderful Life to Lord of the Rings. There's even a hint of it in Star Wars when Luke sees the burned remains of his home on Tatooine. It's a great motif that usually means doom and gloom, but I don't really get that in Close Encounters. It's mostly used in the heavier action scenes involving Roy, though some of them can signal danger, even if it's a fake-out, like the scene when people standing by a road hoping to see a UFO are instead ambushed by a helicopter. I like the use of the chorus at the beginning there. Wonderful use of female voices to embody the mystery of the alien invasion of the film. There was another excellent version of Roy's four-note theme Williams composed, but unfortunately it was not used in the film. It was supposed to come when Roy has his first alien encounter with the ship flying over him at the railroad tracks. Now this is the music we get in the film, which has some virtuoso string playing when Roy starts chasing the UFO.
I'm going to play the music Williams intended to use at first, probably for an earlier edit of the scene. I enjoy listening to this cue a lot, but I will agree that it doesn't help convey the mystery and wonder of the scene that we see in the finished film. I absolutely love that quote-unquote conversation between the flutes and the trumpets. Then it becomes a three-way conversation with the trumpets, trombones, and horns before the tubas rudely cut them off. So earlier I mentioned that female chorus that starts off that cue of the uh, fake uh, helicopter UFO scene. And it's used again in a very pivotal moment when Roy and a woman named Jillian see Devil's Tower on the TV, and it's revealed to them that this is the monument on Earth that they've been seeing in their visions. It starts off so nice and quiet, and then it builds once it starts to click in their heads, almost very triumphant, and we feel relieved that they finally know what they're seeing in their dreams. Now, all the cacophony and mayhem in the score in the early stages is anchored by the famous kidnapping scene of Barry, who is the son of Jillian. A large part of the music that Williams wrote for the scene is not used in the film, but there are some wonderful moments. 
The iconic shot of Barry opening the door to a bright orange light is accompanied by some awesome percussion. I asked my friend and previous co-host Jeff Owens what he thinks those instruments are, and he agreed with me that he hears metal brushes striking a cymbal, but it also sounds like something is being shaken as well. I really love that shot. It gives me the chills. And the music really sells this shot that helped get Vilmos Zygmunt the cinematography Oscar. There's no thematic material in that scene. And the main reason why music cuts in and out so much is the heavy use of sound effects throughout that also won an Academy Award. Most composers would have fought hard to keep their music for this scene in the movie because they would have written something that likely sounded better in a horror movie. Williams just does what he does best. He writes music to complement the scene, no more, no less, and if it doesn't belong, it doesn't belong. Another great theme is the music for the military operation looking to uncover the truth behind the strange occurrences. It has an appropriate military feel to it with the snare drums and brass, but it's the sinister performance on the French horn that paints the operation as villainous. And since every movie has to have a villain, Williams uses the music to keep the audience from rooting for the government agents who conceive of an epidemic to drive citizens away from Devil's Tower.
Once the military puts their plan into action and puts fake decals on their trucks, the theme gets stronger. Everything in the orchestra comes together to make beautiful music in the finale, once the aliens make themselves known. A lot of this music was rewritten a couple times once the visual effects were complete and final edits were made. Since we now know that the aliens come in peace, we get more tonal renditions of some of the music we heard earlier. And once the mothership takes off with Roy in tow, the five-note signal is finally played by the orchestra in all of its grandeur. The ship's departure is a very moving moment, and every time I see it, I do get a bit emotional. I think it's the way Little Barry says, bye, which is the final word spoken in the film. Perhaps not so coincidentally, bye is the last word spoken in E.T. And speaking of E.T., which will be coming later in this podcast, the music for its finale seems like a companion piece to what we hear in Close Encounters. Both scores return to major themes played in the film, giving them more majesty and strength. But E.T.'s finale is far superior, and I will not accept 
any argument saying otherwise. So let's talk about that special edition of Close Encounters that came out in 1980. As is the case with most directors, Steven Spielberg was not happy with the final cut of the film that was released in 1977. He felt that he needed more time to flesh out some special effects and needed more time in the editing room for some scenes. Sounds familiar? This is exactly what George Lucas felt after Star Wars. But back then, home video was not around, so Spielberg asked Columbia Pictures if he could re-release the film with new scenes in the theaters. The studio agreed on the condition that he add in a sequence showing the inside of the mothership. Knowing this was the only way to get the film he wanted, Spielberg said yes, even though he really did not want to shoot that scene. This involved bringing Richard Dreyfuss back for a quick day of shooting reaction shots. John Williams was also asked to help out with the special edition. Instead of just using pre-existing music, Spielberg asked Williams to compose an entirely new three-minute cue for the scene. This was summer 1980, and Williams was just starting his gig as principal conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. So, he used that orchestra and the Tanglewood Chorus to perform the music for the scene. So, Schindler's List was not the first time the Boston Symphony Orchestra performed a John Williams score for use in a film. 
As for the music itself, it feels a bit out of place when blended with the original score composed in 1977. Yes, female voices were used originally to convey the mystery of the aliens, but these voices don't sound the same. Now, the special edition was the first version of Close Encounters that I remember seeing. I was pretty young at the time, but I thought the scenes inside the mothership were pretty cool then. Now, I don't think it adds to the spectacle of the film. We should be left to wonder not only what happens to Roy, but what is inside that ship. Luckily, Spielberg made an ultimate director's cut later without the mothership interiors, and that's the version that lives to this day. If you want to see that sequence inside the mothership, you can find it on YouTube. Close Encounters was a big hit in the 1977 holiday season. It couldn't knock Star Wars off its perch, and I'm sure Spielberg and George Lucas had a few words to say about that. Close Encounters raked in $116 million from a $20 million budget. If Jaws didn't cement Spielberg as a top-notch director, Close Encounters certainly did. Spielberg would get complete creative control of all films after this, a far cry from the studio meddling that took place in the pre-production stages of Close Encounters. John Williams also cemented himself as the top Hollywood composer thanks to his two landmark scores. Of course, Williams never took the time to bathe in this glow, nor did he have the time. As he wrapped up recording for Close Encounters, he was already securing his assignments for the three films he would score for release in 1978. No rest for the famous, I suppose. At the Academy Awards on April 3, 1978, John Williams found himself nominated in the original score category for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was nominated with George De La Rue, Marvin Hamlish, Maurice Jarre, and himself. For the second time, and not the last time, Williams was competing with himself in this category. Of course, Williams won for Star Wars. Williams would find two of his scores nominated for original score in the same year six more times, and only two other composers would accomplish this feat after 1977, and they would be James Horner in 1995 and Alexander Desplat in 2014. Close Encounters of the Third Kind's music did receive some major recognition, even though it did not receive the Oscar. Because the album was not released until November 1977, it fell outside the Grammy qualification period for the 1978 ceremony. That was good luck for Close Encounters, which would win the Grammy for score album written for film or television in 1979, and for best instrumental composition for the film's theme. That gave Williams two consecutive wins in both categories at the Grammys. Many of the people who have reviewed this score, including Mike Mattesino for the 40th anniversary release of the score, say the music for Close Encounters had a bigger impact on film scoring than Star Wars. I completely disagree with that. Yes, Close Encounters is a great score, but when you take away the five-note phrase that intended to be an integral part of the film, the score is just another great Williams work that did not really feel like an extreme step forward for the maestro. Star Wars, on the other hand, is in another league entirely. But that's just one person's opinion. And I know many of you are opening up your email accounts right now to draft a harshly worded note to me. I look forward to reading them. 
So I hope you've enjoyed this look into the Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the long journey John Williams took to complete this project. Next up on the baton, we will kick off our look at his three film scores from 1978, starting with The Fury. And as always, please make sure to write a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts and send those emails to jeffswim at aol.com. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on today's episode, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>